the bottom line here is there's something else we're not knowing about this case. What's I'm sure there's, there's, there's two sides to every case. There's no question about it. And, you know, and there's a doctor here with a puppy that that is let go or something like that. I mean, it's in the doctor's, doctor's break room. Come on. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata with the May issue of Risk Management Monthly being recorded on June 6th. Uh, with me are Rachel Linder and uh, Greg Henry. And uh, this is Maya Copa time, you know. Greg, you remember Maya Copa? Maya yes, I, Copa? I, I, I remember. Okay, Maya so I'm Copa sorry. We, well. You know, it's my fault. I, I take full responsibility. Uh, we are very, very late. However, when is the recording date for next for for the uh, for the June issue? Next it's, Monday. It's June thirteenth, right? Next yeah. Monday, and we can't screw that up. Why? Because we have a guest, Dusty Atwell, who is the uh, in-house counsel for USQ Care Solutions. All this fella does is defend doctors and PAs uh, in emergency medicine, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with him. But that's for. Next Monday, the 13th of June, we are going to record that. And I can assure you the June issue will be on time. But, um, you know, nobody's perfect, you know. Yeah, it is. Things happen, you know. In any case, let's get started. We have a long uh, bunch of things to cover. Uh, Rachel, Greg, you you all set to go here? We're 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 ready. Have any kind of uh, things you'd like to report, you know, like, uh, you know, see any spiders in uh, Arizona, the, uh, what are those tarantulas or anything like that recently, or uh, my, my kids are bug obsessed. So we have this cool app on my phone that, you know, you can take a picture of it, tells you what it is. So I, I fished a bee out of the pool yesterday and took a picture of it. It was an, an executioner wasp. Oh, you should have left it in the pool. Yeah, It's supposed <laughs> to, according to some people has the most painful bite of like all the bites. So that paired with the um, tarantula hawk from the front yard, we're feeling like we live in a pretty creepy place. Yeah, well, actually, uh, Dan's had uh, mountain mountain lions over his wall. They don't they don't care if you get a wall; they're in your yard. You yeah. get a little dog, they'll find it. Yep. Greg, so. anything exciting in your life? Uh, nothing. Okay. I, I, all right. I mean, in fact, in fact, I have to take my pulse occasionally just to make sure. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, let's begin. Uh, we got uh, Rachel. You're going to start off with uh, the importance of having a separation agreement. Yeah. So this is something that you know I think most physicians that are starting a new job, signing a new contract, are going to encounter. Or hopefully, should encounter when they sign their first contract. So it goes by sometimes referred to as separation agreement, sometimes termination agreement, sometimes severance agreement, but basically something that. Uh, we don't often think about when you're starting a job, but it's really the time to think about it when you're starting a job because it basically lays out all the terms um, of your contract when you're ending a job. It basically is is there to protect both you and your employer at the time when you're ending a job. Um, it really lays out both the rights and the obligations of both you and your employer at that time. Uh, basically, for the employer... Um, protects them in a couple different ways. It usually um, provides a set number of days that the physician 
you know, has to give them notice, usually somewhere between 30 and 120 days so that you're not really leaving them in a lurch. And if the physician doesn't give them that, that amount of time, say, they just say, I'm going to take off in a week. Um, there are usually penalties associated with that. For example, the physician might have to pay back something like recruitment costs, or, you know, they lose all of the other benefits that are laid out later in this separation agreement. Um, and the employer also beyond having that kind of notice, it also lays out kind of what the obligations are for the physician in terms of notifying the patient, finishing their records, what they can and can't say about the employer. Um, and then for the physician, it, um, or I guess the employer also, um, usually has kind of three other major clauses that the, that are relevant to the physician that, that we think about more. So that being non-compete clauses often go in the separation agreement. So this idea that, um, when you leave that place of employment, the employer has the ability to say that, you know, the physician then can't practice within a certain radius of, you know, usually certain geographic radius of that, um, employer's place of business, uh, non-solicitation agreements that that physician can't try to take employees with them when they leave and, uh, non-disparage, not, uh, uh, non-disparagement agreements that they can't go around saying bad things about the employer. Those are kind of standard parts of this terminate or termination agreement, separation agreement, severance agreement, whatever you want to call it. Um, so again, this is something that you kind of have to think about when you enter into the contract. Uh, let's see, what else did you put in here that you think this was part of a Medscape article, which I can't actually see Rick. So you might need to put it <laughs> put some of your other highlights in here. Oh yeah, this was Medscape, uh, Christina uh, Lehman, uh, May of uh, this year, 2022. Um, one of the things to, to know when you're entering into one of these, you know, it's pretty standard terminology to, uh, the, the, the employer might put one of these into your contract, but this is one of these areas where it's really important for you to have a lawyer review it. Um, because first of all, if they don't have one of these, it can really benefit you to have one because you have the ability to really negotiate upfront, especially when you are signing an agreement for what you want in there. So if they don't have one, this is your opportunity to say, Hey, if I ever leave, I want to be sure that when I leave, I have, you know, two months of, um, tail coverage or, you know, whatever, two years of tail coverage. I want three months of health insurance to follow me. I want X amount of pay. This is your time to negotiate that. And so um, use this as kind of an opportunity for negotiation and, and lawyers can help you kind of figure out what is reasonable to ask for at that time. And again, it ha happens when you're negotiating your contract and there are employment lawyers that, that really specialize in this. And so if, if you are signing a contract that doesn't have this, this is a time to hire a lawyer and ask for it and put that in the contract at this point. Also, if you're signing a contract that does have one of these and you want to know, is this reasonable? This might be a time where your employer is trying to get you to sign something that kind of um, is to their benefit and not to yours. And so have a lawyer review that and make sure that you're softening the language where it's appropriate. Because if I was an employer, I would probably do that. <laughs> um, you, you, guys a, wanted... you, you would be a <laughs> tough employer, I can tell you. Yeah. Well, you know, you're 
somebody's signing a contract, they're all excited for the job. And this is an opportunity, you know, they, they're not thinking about ending the job and you are because you're the employer and, you know, you know that this is inevitably what happens. So this is, this is like a prenuptial agreement. When you're getting married, you're all excited. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to be, I'm going to be working here for the rest of my life. It's going to be fabulous. And then you, uh, things that don't go as you uh, planned, or there's something else that goes on that makes you want to leave that job. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, you ought to do this up front. It's like, it's almost, it's almost like asking for a prenuptial agreement uh, when you're getting married early on. And it's like, because you don't really want to talk to the employer about leaving. You just got hired and you want to show them that you're, you're uh, going to be there forever and ever and ever. And now you want to talk about what, what happens when you leave? And right. Greg, did you ever have a, these, these agreements for your, yeah. your doc? <clears throat> this discussion has been happening for the last 50 years that I'm aware of. Uh, and uh, it is only the very smart docs who carry on this kind of discussion early on before there's any animosity. Uh, most of these kinds of discussions are held when the doc's already in trouble or being, con you know, you've been told to get rid of them, that sort of thing. Um, but there's somebody who asked for this in advance, uh, they're, they're doing you a favor. They, they understand what can happen here and you need to pay attention to, uh, to their concerns because they have to make decisions about buying houses and moving and doing all these sorts of things. Uh, pay attention to it. Uh, yeah. To, to Rachel, kind of, do you to, have one? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's I don't even think. A, uh, you're you're going to be in Mayo for your entire life. You know, Mayo, you don't even sign a contract. It's like a, that's what it's known for. Um, so. You don't have any rights or privileges <laughs> there. there. You're an at-will employee that you could be I, gone tomorrow. Who knows? Oh, <laughs> and listen, this is the lawyer saying you better get a lawyer to do this. You know, she doesn't have an agreement getting in. No, that's yes, getting I out. You know? <laughs> Jeez, Louise. I'm this just like going to behave this, well. I'm just behaving the, well over there. She makes um, children here. What I was going to say to continue the marriage uh, metaphor here, you know, the employer in this case is somebody that's been divorced, you know, 500 times. So of course they're thinking about the prenup and they've thought about it. They have this prenup, you know, down to a T and the person they're getting married, it's, you know, often their first marriage, they're not thinking about it at all. So of course this prenup is going to be worded, you know, to benefit the person that's been married 500 married and divorced 500 times. And you know, the employer. And so if you go into this and you don't think about it, that's going to bite you when you leave the, you, when you leave this position, which you will inevitably do. And so, you know, you really have to think about this, understand that it can either benefit you or it can bite you and, you know, use that opportunity to have it benefit you because there are lots of people who have, who have very generous separation, severance packages, whatever it's, you know, especially if you're hired at a time where, 
um, you know, you are a, a hot commodity, then you can, you can negotiate this so that you get something good out of a severance package. Right. It says one of the times that you have power is when you're coming in. That's when you can negotiate. Right. When you're leaving, the only power that you really have is the power to threaten to sue them, which, uh, whether it's groundless or not, you can just say, you know, that's, that's all you can do. And you can waive your right to claim any, uh, any future, uh, uh, disagreements and that's uh, uh, the power that you have at the end saying we're done uh there will be no um retribution uh, etc the only thing i found really weird about this is how do you deal with uh letters of recommendation greg you've been you've been written you've probably written a million letters of recommendations <laughs> and how do you oh, deal God. with that in advance <laughs> Like the this this says, well, you don't want to be disparaged when you leave the group. But what if you were a jerk? What if you killed five people? You know, that might require some disparagement. Yeah, it it requires you to uh, to read to write the letter of recommendation, or the uh, and then take it out of the drawer the next day and read it <laughs> because. Um, there's no question that I wrote some hideous letters for a couple of people. Um, I'm sorry I did it. I, it. It shouldn't have happened. But uh, understand that everybody knows how to read a letter of recommendation. So when it says he worked here for 10 months, he never stole anything that we knew <laughs> about. Uh, and thank you very much. You've said everything, but sometimes uh, saying as little as possible in these letters is a good thing because the, the only thing it can do is get you in a pissing contest down the road. Well, I remember that some of them basically said uh, he started on this date and he left on that date. And that yes. basically means that you've got something to say that, but you don't want to put it in the form of a letter. Exactly. You know, and so you're going to get a phone call. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> what, what about all that stuff in the middle? Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I was looking up a, a case related to this and I found an interesting case involving uh, Mayo actually, but it's public. So I can talk about it. Uh, had uh, a, a subspecialist left Mayo for poor performance, basically, you know, should be giving all of her warnings that didn't work, had poor performance, ended up being terminated. But as part of the separation agreement, uh, you know, they had come to an agreement that she, you know, that Mayo would not give her a negative review. And in fact, as part of the kind of agreement, they came up with a letter of, um, mm -hmm. you know, actually like a form letter so that if, another job were to contact them, they agreed on, this is the letter that they will get, uh, you know, if, if they're contacted by a future employer and everyone had agreed on that language. And so she went out and applied for a job at Mount Sinai a couple of years later and Mount Sinai contacted Mayo and, you know, asked about her and they sent her this letter that was agreed on, which was basically factual, you know, was employed here between these dates and had, you know, did this many procedures and blah, blah, blah. And then, 
when Mount Sinai, you know, got further in the process and then they contacted Mayo and were inquiring about credentialing for the procedures. And so they sent another form about credentialing and it required whoever um, at Mayo to fill out something about like, you know, so, some more check boxes. And as part of that, they filled out all the check boxes. There were like 13 check boxes and 11 out of the 13, they filled out that this person was, you know, excellent or, or great. And then two of them, they filled out as fair, that the person's skills were fair or their integrity or something was fair. And ultimately the person did not end up getting that job at Mount Sinai. And so when she did not get the job or did not get the, um, well, yeah, she didn't get the job. She ended up kind of looking back through and, and basically suing Mayo, uh, saying, you know, you violated this, uh, non-disparagement clause in our separation agreement. And that went to court. And ultimately it was decided in Mayo's favor because they said, no, the only thing that was in the agreement is that you would not um, disparage her to future employers in the letters of recommendation. But this wasn't in a letter of recommendation. It was in a credentialing questionnaire. So that wasn't covered. And, you know, I, I, Basically, the story that covered it said, you know, so therefore, when you're coming up with a, a separation agreement, you should be really thoughtful about the language you're using and not just, you know, ask for non-disparagement in letters of recommendation, but like in all communications with future employers. But I just thought it was interesting, you know, a couple of the a couple of the points in the story that basically they come up with those letters ahead of time and both parties agree on, you know, what is the language that's going to be used? So they can't do kind of what you're talking about, which is, you know, provide so few words in the letter that it is, you know, obviously negative without saying anything negative that, you know, everyone agrees in the language ahead of time and kind of, um, anyway, I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting anecdote there. Well, there was never a problem with my letters of recommendation because if you were a great ball player and we loved you and we didn't want you to go, we let people know that, you know, you're getting a great person <laughs> and we'd, we'd have kept them in a second. And when it says, uh, yeah, they worked here from this date to this date and um there, there are no current active lawsuits or something like that. When that's the way the letter reads, uh, you've, you've, you've conveyed, you've conveyed what you need to convey. I think. You know, I think it's really hard though, uh, and it, where I think it's hard is focusing on this letter that is going to be used when you leave five years now, ten years from now, and. Um, it's like, well, what if you do need to be disparaged, uh, you know, in not ne necessarily a uh, harmful way, but just a factual way, you know, that they, they lost their privileges for six months because of this, that, or the other thing. That's just, that's just a fact. And, and to it's, and it's, it's a negative fact for sure. But how, so how does this work? We're going to write you a preformed um, satisfactory lever that you're, you've agreed to. I mean, I think it's tough. Uh, I think the employer is put into a bit of a box in terms of working on a letter that that's going to be used in the future at some distant future. But in any case, 
This is what they said. And I think that the idea of having a separation agreement that makes a lot of sense. I think that I would be a little uncomfortable saying, okay, well, we're, we're engaged now. We're about to, I mean, we're about to become together here. And Oh, by the way, can I have uh, the separation agreement? This is like marriage. Marriage is easy to get into and hard to get out of. Right. You know, um, Anything else here, guys? Well, before we move on, I bet you you I bet you had a pretty serious policy, Greg. About since your group is pretty large about um, dealing with people who are leaving. Yes. Oh. Uh, and and like I say, we if you're the director of a department, you have to write these letters. You don't get a choice. I mean, they do come in. You just have to know. What you're, uh, what what you're saying? Is that your pacemaker? Uh, yeah, it's my uh, it's my uh, pacemaker exactly. Um, but uh, that's uh, that's why um, you have to take your time and look at these things carefully. You know, it's real simple. When they were a great uh, uh, yes. person, mm-hmm. sure. and they have to leave. That's not a problem. The problem is when you have to make some negative comment, and that's where you got to be careful. You know, uh, one of my friends is a residency director here, and he basically has to write all of these letters of all of these residents who go every year uh, when they're when jobs are being sought for uh, by these folks. And he says it's a real pain in the butt. Uh, you have to walk this really kind of delicate delicate line, but hopefully uh, you're never going to leave the job that you had. It's going to be a wonderful job. It sounds like <laughs> you don't have to worry about Mayo uh, because you don't have, they can fire you whenever you want. They want, you know, apparently. Um, let's move on to a little, this is a little news item here from, you know, I've been telling you in the past about the cap on non-economic damages, otherwise known as pain and suffering that many, many states have, and a good number of states have had them and have gotten rid of them. California's began in 1975, 1975. We were one of the first, and our cap at that time was $250,000 in pain and suffering. But it never budged from that. It's been $250,000 since 1975. So the lawyers, every year, threatened to have a initiative we were we we legislate by initiatives here where if you get enough people to sign uh, a a petition that that initiative will be on the ballot of uh, and and in this case the lawyers are going to have a ballot measure to fix uh, this in their favor and oddly enough this is this is really unheard of because the ballot measures are basically uh, hugely costly because you're on running ads on TV about telling other people how bad the other people are, and it would have spent a lot, a lot of money uh, fighting each other. They just said, hey, listen, let's, let's come together and work this out. And, and if, we, if we do this, we won't do a ballot measure. We won't have a fight in the public. 
And, and actually they did it. And it's kind of strange because starting January 1st, the award will go up to $350,000. Well, that's a, that's, that's chicken feed considering it was at 250,000 for since 75, it went up $100,000, big deal. Yeah. And over a 10 year period, it'll, it'll go over, up to $750,000. It's like, who won this negotiation? Obviously, the doctors did. It's like who was who was at the switch here for the uh, for the lawyers. Seven hundred fifty dollars ten years from now. Well, in any case, this is a amazing resolution uh, by two parties coming together. But looking from the outside, it looks like the doctors really got the better end of this by far. Greg, any thoughts about? the idea of uh, caps on pain and suffering? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that uh, juries are intelligent people. They can make up their own decisions about how much pain and suffering there's been. Um, I, th I think some states have uh, strict guidelines. Others have almost nothing. I don't think it makes a lot of difference. And I think in general, uh, patients do pretty well at the hands of uh, juries. Uh, and uh, juries do take care of people when it's necessary. Well, you have to remember now, this is not taking care of people when it's necessary. This is pain and suffering. Yes. This is, I, this is loss of consortium, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Ra Rachel, any thoughts? Um, no, just to add a little more nuance. So this the amounts here, the 350,000, 750,000 are uh, for cases that did not involve wrongful death. It's a little bit higher in cases involving wrongful death. It's 500,000 up to a million. So that's probably, you know, a little bit higher. Yeah. Still, I think, you know, there are a lot of other states where they don't have those caps and they go up to, you know, 25 million or something. Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, used uh, some, uh, talcum powder on your lower lower levels and the next thing you know you got ovarian cancer but i think i um see what you mean that you know it was a a win for physicians because of that amount but at the same time you know 250,000 lawyers aren't even going to want to take the case and then that's the, the previous problem. right in the previous law there was also along with that, there was limits based on the amount that the attorneys could collect. So under the previous law, they could only collect um, like 25% wow. of amounts up to 500,000, 15% of anything that exceeded 600,000. So, you know, we're used to attorneys billing 40% of a contingency, but under California law, it was 15% of amounts above 600,000. So it was limiting even that. So attorneys weren't going to want to take cases. And this bill, I don't know the particulars, but it changes that. So I think it will allow more people to bring suits forward, which, you know, depending on your stance is a good or bad thing, but. Um, right. I'm I, glad I, you mentioned depending on your stance because yes, there were lots of cases that really were meritorious, but lawyers won't take them on kind of thing because um, they weren't slam dunk, bad baby cases, or uh, that's what they want. But so emergency medicine cases dropped tremendously. The, the uh, 
the rates for insurance uh, dropped here. This this all was, you know, during during my time in practice, and so it's kind of like, I don't think it's a, a, a huge improvement because uh, I'm concerned about this these people who have legitimate cases uh, who can't get their day in court. Anyway, moving on, Rachel, you want to do, uh, oh, listen, I'm going to do a case here on chest pain. Yeah, let's do a case here. All right, this is a case. This is a little weird, a little weird, but fundamentally uh, uh, really important. So this is a, a case out of Eric Funk's uh, Ben Mal Reviewer. Eric is an emergency physician, uh, provides uh, these cases and depositions to review and the like. This was published 18... Uh, uh, April 18th, 2020, 61-year-old male who presents in the emergency department with a variety of complaints, including shaking legs, abdominal pain, multiple other complaints. The uh, the only abnormality in vital signs is his blood pressure, 169 over 84. Here's what the nurse uh, wrote. Abrupt onset of the, station, of the sensation that he had a lid of a paint can began in his epigastrium and slammed into his jaw and then came down and continued to compress upon his abdomen. It came on mm. abruptly. Mm -hmm. It's got the pain can syndrome. You heard right. of this, Greg. Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. He was loading the car when this, this, this came on. So the EKG was nonspecific. The troponin was uh, normal. But during the patient's stay, he continued to have uh, some feeling of this pain can uh, lid lid i don't not the whole can just a lid uh in his abdomen and uh, upper and and chest so they admitted him for pain they don't really know you know why but it was still there so let's let's admit him uh because the pain got a, a little worse when they went to the floor they decided to do a cardiac catheterization despite the normal enzymes a marker it's not an enzyme a, a marker and uh ekg and they during the catheterization, they de determined that the patient had an ascending uh, aortic uh, aneurysm dissection. And during that process, he developed bradycardia and died on the table, poor form. Um, and obviously, there was a lawsuit. And one of the issues was that he never had an emergency department chest x-ray. That does seem a little strange, um, where depending where you think this pain can lid is uh, stuck, um, that he that he never had one of those, and they want you know obviously the logic is well if you had done that you would have seen the mediastinum was wide or this or that, uh, um, but they didn't do that. And any thoughts? <clears throat> Everybody always can, after the fact, find a, a finding on the x-ray. Um, truth is, if you look at some of the series done, probably less than 30% of people who have this problem, uh, does, does somebody call it from, from the x-ray? This is a rare, th th this is an unusual um, x-ray finding, Rick, uh, it would not be common to be picked up. Well, well, yes, but on the side of the patient, you never gave me a chance to, uh, show it to you. Uh, so show you my symptoms. 
Um, Rachel, any thoughts? Yeah, this, I mean, there's not a ton of information in this case. So this guy with uh, some bizarre chest pain, abrupt onset chest pain, who's hypertensive, and he only had an EKG and troponin. Troponin's what, like 20, 25% sensitivity for dissection. And then they put him in the hospital because of persistent pain. We don't have any idea of the intensity of his pain. We don't know. Well, you know, if he had equal blood pressures, we don't know if it was nitro responsive. I'm, we just, we don't know if they considered dissection. We don't know if he had a bedside ultrasound, you know, cardiac ultrasound. We don't, you know, we don't really know anything. Here. Well, the, so, the whole thrust of this case is uh, this guy get admitted with a uh, dissection. The di that diagnosis was not, um, made in the er but was it considered in the er and it looks like it wasn't considered based on that, the documentation yes, yes that's i think that's the point right that you have to consider these three diagnoses whether you like it or not right pe uh dissection uh cardiac ischemia and although there's of the three by far the dissection is the the least down the list in terms of frequency, it's it's going to kill you if you don't make that dissect, uh, diagnosis. And uh, I was reviewed a case that is almost identical to this, and I think I reviewed it on uh, on on our show here. And so you are obligated, whether you like it or not, to put something in the chart that means that you have considered these other two diagnoses whether uh and and the things that you put down do not necessarily have to be really good tests of whether they had this diagnosis but you could say something about the pulses being equal and in, in the right and left that means you you're you're thinking about it alert at least or there's no widening of the mediastinum on the chest x-ray or just that kind of phraseology will help no evidence of um DVT uh, or swelling of the lower extremities, uh, no uh, evidence of right heart strain on the EKG, no evidence of tachycardia, or by far the most number, most, e most PEs don't have tachycardia, most PEs don't have S1, Q3, T3. But just if you just tease us with some of those phraseologies, it will tell everybody Obviously, he considered it. Now, did he do an angiogram to prove it? No. Did he do an ultrasound to prove it? No. Maybe he didn't think it was that necessary uh, because he really didn't think it was the operant diagnosis. But this comes up all the time. Please, 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 please consider those two other diagnoses when you're talking about somebody who has something that may be going on in his chest. Right. He, if, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Even, I was just even if it's a pancake lid. I was going to say he jumped down the, you know, end STEMI or unstable angina pathway really quickly. And, you know, in somebody with a normal troponin and non-specific EKG changes in this story, that's a tough pathway to, to sprint down. That's exactly right. It was the case I had. Well, we don't know, but he's still having pain. So we can't really send him home. And that person dissected too and, and died when they went to the floor to be assessed by the nurse. And as the nurse was doing her assessment, eyes rolled back and that was it mm. done. So please, it's, it's, it's a really simple message. You got to consider all three of these 
all the time. And yeah, your batting order, your batting average is going to be pretty small to, to find the dissections. But in your career, you're going to find a dissection. It's 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 going to happen. Rachel, in your in your young career, have you seen a dissection? Yeah, probably about five of them. There you go. Yeah. That means Greg, you you must have seen a lot more than that. Oh no, <laughs> a- actually. Um, it would probably be probably five or six. Uh, and I know mine was a lot longer time in the ER, uh, but I, I, but everybody's ER doesn't have the same group of patients coming to it. And, uh, and who knows, the Mayo Clinic may have a slightly sicker group of folks. I don't know. But, the average uh, age of my patients is like 80. Yes. <laughs> yes. With about six diseases. Yeah. Yes. And exactly. forty pills. Yeah. All right. So I think that's the uh, gist of that one. We've beaten that one, but this is just this is just emergency medicine one hundred and one, and you see these cases over and over and over. All right. Well, I think. Sorry. Just go ahead. Even no, we've beaten that one. I was going to say, I think nobody wants to be the person that, you know, thinks about dissection immediately with every patient who comes in with chest pain and you can't be, you can't work every single patient up for chest pain when they walk in the door. But I don't think this case says that you have to be, you know, I think it's fine to kind of go down the ACS pathway first, but when you get down that pathway and it doesn't suggest ACS and the person still has, you know, ongoing chest pain and has this story of kind of abrupt onset and you're not finding anything to suggest an NSTEMI, then you've got to kind of circle back and look for those less common causes. It doesn't mean, yeah, I think you're true. I think that's true. Although a a safer uh, attack may be to say, I have to consider these, these are the big three that I have to consider in these people who have something going on in their chest. Yeah, you think about them right away, but I'm not saying everybody goes to get to CTA out no, you know, no, no. right through the door. No, but right. I think that you can say some things which clinically uh, allows you to believe that this is not per- the person's diagnosis without doing all of these tests. I mean, yeah. the, his, just to acknowledge that you've considered them. And and then you've looked and you did check the pulses. Yeah, you, you know, and the chest. I, you know, I think that just the, uh, these phrases make it clear that you were looking for uh, uh, more than ACS when they came in with chest pain. Rachel, tell us about this uh, this case where <laughs> a doctor gets sued for starting an IV. All right, so this is a case also in Medscape by Alicia Gallegos uh, from May 6, 2022, Medscape article. So uh, this talks about a young William Sullivan Dio back when he was an emergency physician going to law school. And in this case, he was just working in the ED and apparently there was a trauma victim who came in, trauma team was working on him. Nobody could get an IV. And so they basically pulled him in and said, can you help us out? We can't get a line started. So he came in, got a a femoral line put in, went back to work. That was it. He had no other care with the patient. He basically was just pulled in from his other duties to put the line in. Basically, a year later, he was put on notice that he was sued by this patient. 
um, because patient had a bad outcome and, and ended up having internal bleeding or something. Um, and family was angry that he didn't go to surgery sooner. And they basically, you know, sued everyone involved, including the director of the radiology department who wasn't even in the hospital at that time, but whose name happened to be on the case because it was just kind of appended to the, the radiology report from the images that this trauma patient had had. Uh, so, you know, Dr. Sullivan reviewing this was frustrated because in the state of Illinois, where this happened, there's basically a rule that in order for um, attorneys to file lawsuits, you know, against, um, well, against anybody, they have to have, well, against physicians, um, they have to have a certificate of merit. So the, the lawsuit has to be reviewed by kind of an unbiased outside physician to say, yes, this is a meritorious lawsuit. This physician is, you know, rightfully named in this case. And, so apparently this case against Dr. Sullivan had been reviewed by one of these outside physicians who had said, yep, it's appropriate that he's named in this case. And yes, it's appropriate that this, you know, radiology director who was not even, you know, in the state is named in this case. And it was Dr. Sullivan is frustrated. Like this certificate of merit is breaking down in this case, because obviously, you know, neither he didn't feel he should be named or this radiology director. And both of these people are named in the case. Um, so he actually went and filed a lawsuit against, um, let's see, who was it against the plaintiff's law firm for malicious prosecution saying, you know, whoever they hired, um, and relied on that, that person was unqualified that, you know, they didn't meet the requirements. for, uh, they, they didn't basically, they are granting that certificate of merit, um, didn't meet the requirements or the standards in Illinois. Um, and he lost that lawsuit basically saying there really weren't very many standards. Um, and plaintiff lawyers really didn't want any part in changing those. They liked the fact that there were really no standards in the state of Illinois, that there was a really low bar. Um, they really weren't interested in changing that system or, you know, trying to increase this, the standards for that certificate of merit. So in, in his case, uh, in Dr. Sullivan's case, it took 18 months for him to get dismissed, even though, you know, he really had nothing to do with the fact that the internal bleeding was missed. And so he had to spend a bunch of his own money trying to get himself dismissed again, even though there was, he really had no involvement in this. Um, I guess I'll leave it at that. I'll let you guys weigh in here. Greg? You know, no matter what system you set up, there's going to be some story that you can tell that it it wasn't quite fair to everybody. But I think in most cases, the, 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 the system, the process whittles down uh, the really poor cases. It really does, I think. Uh, more than that, the plaintiffs can't afford to try really bad cases uh, anymore because the cost of trial is, is high. It's, it's real. 
So uh, in any in any event, we need to uh, we need to think about about the bigger picture here. And I'm not sure that there's more silly or bad or really outrageous lawsuits today than there was 20 years ago. I, I you know, I having been looking at these cases now for a, a goodly number of years, I think I think that there's always going to be a certain number of cases which are going to be, you know, enraged about. I mean, a, a really terrible. But the bottom line is, eh, it, it's probably about the same for everybody. You know, the I, one of the problems here is that these certificates of merits uh, do not ha necessarily have to uh, indicate who was the physician who made this claim and uh and what specifically w were the issues that uh allowed that physician to think that this was a meritorious uh, claim so he really wasn't able to kind of fight back particularly against that claim and it took a long time to get out of it therefore so there the point was made is that some states allow this person to be anonymous other states uh this person is not anonymous apparently I do think right. personally that a certificate of murder is a good thing. Uh, generically, you don't want, you know, really bad things go, to go down. But I think most lawyers, right, there's so much money involved in these cases in terms of pursuing them that um, there, this idea of frivolous lawsuits is just kind of not really there. Nobody can afford to deal with frivolous lawsuits, to create frivolous lawsuits, to pursue frivolous lawsuits. So, and, you know, uh, we covered that a couple months ago about an article that basically says <laughs> there's not, there's not going to be a frivolous lawsuit because the other thing is, is that the insurance companies aren't, don't back down anymore. If you've got a bad case, they're going to say, fine, see you in court. Uh, so, ASAP has taken a position about this idea of certificate emerged by anonymous physicians and said, you know, that's not such a good idea. Um, I don't know a specific policy. Normally, uh, Rachel is able to pull up these policies within 30 seconds, you know, being the millennial that she is. But in any case, Dr. Sullivan is, is actually quite well known. Greg, uh, we've had Dr. Sullivan on the on the, uh, our recording series. Yes, we have, and he is a very well known uh, young man, and and um, and I understand why he took this personally. Um, but but the process did eventually uh, uh, exercise itself, and he uh, he did not pay money on the case as I uh, remember this. And, and so uh, it, it was a pain in the butt. It was work to get through it, but he got through it. Uh, well, you know, he said, at least in the story, that considerable dollars, or maybe the word is can be spent um, as a physician is dropped from these cases and it took a long time uh, for that to occur. Anyway, 
the idea here is an, uh, anonymous certificates of merits. Is that a fair thing to do? Do uh, the physicians who are being sued have some kind of recourse to rebut uh, those assertions? So, so you had written down that there are 28 states that require a certificate of merit for malpractice lawsuits, and about a third of those allow anonymous, anonymous experts. And Challenge accepted, Rick. I found the ASAP policy. It's called Anonymous oh, Affidavits of Merit. It was originally written in June 2016. It was just revised in April 2022. It's really short. I can just read it to you. So this is ASAP's official policy. It says, Affidavits of Merit provided by the plaintiff's expert witness are required in some jurisdictions to assure that a legal case has a substantive basis for filing purposes. Their state intent is to reduce the number of frivolous lawsuits. Anonymous affidavits of merits are uncommon. However, in some cases and regions, courts allow affidavits of merits to be filed anonymously. Anonymous testimony in any form prevents confirmation of the expert's qualifications, authoritative expertise, and potential bias, all of which are crucial to fair and proper evaluation of claims. The American College of Emergency Physicians opposes the admission of anonymous affidavits of merit in medical malpractice litigation and other judicial proceedings. Well, April... 2022. Are we current or what? Yeah. <laughs> Considering this is May. Yeah. Yeah. Right. May. Yes. It's May. No. <laughs> yeah. That's terrific. Uh, you are, uh, you know, you didn't let me down on that at all. <laughs> I, I knew that ASAP was uh, made some kind of uh, um, position, but they went out and specifically said um, anonymous is not good. Well, one of the issues with that is, you know, basically once somebody has kind of stamped this certificate of merit, it almost is uh, equivalent to a physician saying you've done something wrong, um, you know, or you've breached mm -hmm. the standard of care. It, it's interpreted like that, you know, in some circles. So a physician who's on the receiving end of this feels like, hey, a physician, you know, feels like I, you know, I committed malpractice here, but it's not really fair because you could have, you know, a pathologist be the expert, you know, right. providing the certificate of merit for an emergency physician. And you have, if this person is anonymous, you have no idea to know what specialty that person is even in. Whereas in actual court cases, the expert that's testifying against you has to be in the same specialty in the same setting, et cetera. That's not, that's not the case at all for these certificates of merit. They always point so, out that uh, one physician can uh, indicate that the practice of multiple physicians uh, are worthy of a certificate of merit. Independent okay. of what your specialty is, you can say, yes, that's wrong. And that and bring them and, and name them all and say, yeah, I think that, that there's a, a reasonable uh, claim here. Let me talk about reasonable claims if I could. Um, this is about a malpractice insurer who went bankrupt and left 57 emergency physicians who had opened claims with um, the, uh, the a letter that said, we're going to pay 40% of your defense costs and 40% of your any awards that you uh, that are awarded you. This was uh, Epic's. Greg, you probably know something about yes. this company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's had a, a relatively long history in emergency medicine because I, I, you know, you and I knew some of the people involved with uh, Epic's, and uh, we used to see them at the uh, scientific assembly. They had a they had a booth there, and and this this is the bad outcome of this company that 
the state of Vermont said is um, was they didn't use the word bankruptcy. They have a different term up in Vermont, you know, right. probably from the 1650s or something like that. But in any case, this was a uh, and, you know, normally insurance companies have some kind of the state will guarantee them in some way. But apparently they don't guarantee risk retention insurance companies, which means that the insurance company is owned by the members who are insured. That basically disqualifies you from what's called this guarantee fund protection. And they focus on, you know, a 60-year-old physician who was insured by uh, Epics, who was facing his first, first malpractice claim. Um, and to my knowledge, there is no happy ending here. And so this doctor who is about to retire may not be able to retire because just paying lawyers and the, and the like um, could be costly. I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, having been the president of an insurance company for a while and uh, having lived through this, uh, it, is, it is not simple. And to think that uh, you're going to get away from the big numbers um, and not be sued and not do this and not do that, it's not true. You're going to be there with everybody else, and you're going to have to put up with a certain amount of, of outrageous claims and this, that, and other thing. I, I, I think the insurance business is for people who do insurance. <laughs> and and uh, people, you know, inventing your own insurance company. Now, you know, when I think about it, we did very well. We, we were very successful. but. Uh, I, I certainly know those that weren't, Rick. And I think a uh, young physician starting work should ask who's insuring this project and uh, how they cover and what they don't cover and all that sort of thing. Those are legitimate questions which most people coming to interview with you don't even know about. Well, it was noted that this insurance company uh, began when we were in this malpractice crisis. This was a, a bunch of years ago when there was like lots of suits and uh, everybody was getting uh, getting sued. The um, and the rates were going up through the roof, and there were the crises in certain states where they couldn't get enough neurosurgeons because they were getting sued uh, too much. And so yeah. this, this company was born out of that uh, time period, but it seemed to survive then, but at, at the end, uh, more recently, it just kind of looks like it ran out of money. Yes. Uh, it could have been hit by a series of really nasty claims. It could not. It could have been a small company that could not absorb these losses. Fifty-seven ER docs. Uh, it's a lot of suits. That's it's a lot of suits. It's a lot of suits, and and it's a lot of process money. Just paying the attorneys. The attorneys don't work for free, and they get they get paid for handling the cases and uh, just the operative costs uh, of running the company can uh, can bring them down. 
Um, you know, again, when I was in the business, less than half our costs were, were payments to plaintiffs. It was the legal process. And uh, your salary. Yeah. And the legal salary. Yes. Which, which, which happened. Right. All right. Uh, Rachel, any thoughts on about bankrupt oh. malpractice? I was just going to say, you know, I could see that how this would be something easy to slip into. I think, you know, there are a lot of people moving into kind of a um, a feeling of anti big business, you know, anti corporate medicine. And so um, moving into, into or looking into smaller groups and there are lots of benefits to being in smaller groups, but this kind of maybe smaller insurance companies is not something you'd want to get yourself into because this is an area where the risk sharing or risk distribution makes a big difference. Um, obviously there's, there's give and take, but this is, uh, maybe an area where a big business. Well, one of the problems is, is that, uh, malpractice insurance companies like, like with Greg's, they were self-insured for the first, I don't know, half a million dollars. And then, Lloyd's of London insures you for the big, big numbers. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think uh, one of the issues is, is that these insurance companies at the time were making lots of money. Greg's company made money. I know other companies that were risk retention groups made money. And so it was like, well, uh, let's get, let's get into this and we'll get enough ER docs and we're all, all own the company and, uh, it'll be very democratic, et cetera, et cetera. And because um, these people who did this, you know, they were good people. Um, they just they just had a series of not good things happen. Wrongful dismissal. Get another case of wrongful dismissal. Listen, if you haven't heard by now, if you get wrongfully dismissed, you have a uh, you have a nice case. You have a really nice case. Here's a case. This is, this is again, uh, a Ruth Sorrell uh, article in Emergency Physicians Monthly, January 2022. It's a, about a, a physician out of UC San Diego who uh, was, um, was asking for better uh, uh, protection against uh, COVID. They, this was their early cases, and yet this physician said this is we need to up our up our game here on protection of our um, employees because this is not uh, a usual virus and let's get with it. And the he said that his recommendations were met with either they were either ignored or met with hostility. And this physician uh, had made similar recommendations at another hospital where they in fact. Uh, were uh, implemented, uh, but UC San Diego apparently wasn't interested. And so this physician went up the ladder uh, and it looks like the, the, on the way up, the physician skipped a few, a few steps because he went directly to the CEO of the hospital. Uh, that's not a good thing to do. That's not in a good thing to do. In general, that's not the place to start. No, you you're, you got to go up to the chain of command. But in any case, ultimately, the uh, met with the vice chair. The article said that uh, there was uh, he was the physician was angrily reprimanded uh, for writing in order for his nurse to 
get an N95 mask so she could protect herself while she did a nasal swab on a patient. Um, they threatened his career, at least that, that was the perception. And despite the fact that UC San Diego uh, allows for due process in care in case of physicians, uh, he asserts that he was required to sign a contract stating he, he was employed at will and that he would be provided with written notice if his employment was terminated. So basically he waived his rights to the due process of the University of San Diego, but the University of San Diego's employees basically re required him to sign this, this uh, document. At will employees, more or less, are let go at will. They also had an opportunity to fire this doctor's wife because she brought a puppy to an urgent care center that the doctor was working at, which was in the same system. The puppy was in the physician's lounge, but that that uh, still caused a problem. The, obviously, the, the university denied retaliatory firing of the physician and his wife. They they sent an the emergency department sent an email to all the emergency physicians talking about the fact that this. Physician was fired because of lack of integrity. Wow. Um, the physician claimed he was not given an opportunity to defend himself and his wife. Dr. Robert McNamara, one of the finders of AAEM, said in this case that the person sweeping the floors in the emergency department had more uh, rights than the emergency physician working in the department. Yeah, and that's true. Uh, the president of Ford Motor Company um, has less rights than almost anybody else uh, because he either produces or he's gone. And there's there's no way to get away from that. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I that that's not a valid uh, criticism. But the bottom line here is there's something else we're not knowing about this case. What's oh, sure, this? There's, there's there's two sides to every case. There's no question about it. You know, and there's a doctor here with a puppy that that is let go or something like that. I mean, it's in the doctor's strange. doctor's break room. Come on, yeah, yeah. It's not like they X-ray the puppy, right? <laughs> which is what we did in the Indian Health Service. The chief brought his dog over, and we, we put the dog up on the table for an X-ray and. Some people thought that that was unsanitary. I don't yeah. know. I didn't think it had anything to do with anything. But okay. this is a series of cases that we've done over the last six months about people claiming that they were fired inappropriately and are, are going after the uh, people who did the firing. And uh, two, two sides to every case. But the bottom line is, physicians not working there anymore. Yeah. Any thoughts about that, Rachel? Get concerned about uh, being fired and having no no rights where everybody else has rights. Yeah, this is an area that I need to brush up on a little bit. Um, but you know, the EEOC, the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, kind of oversees this and they basically, you know, say that even if you sign something, if it's done under circumstances where you were induced by fraud, duress, undue influence, if you didn't have enough time to read and think about what you're signing, 
Um, if you didn't have, if you weren't able to consult with an attorney or you were discouraged by your employer from doing so, or whether you didn't have any opportunity to negotiate, like whatever, even if, if any of those were true, if what you sign might not be enforceable and, you know, it really sounds like that's what is being described here. So it sounds like he probably has a case just based on the kind of little blurb that we got, you know, not every signature makes something valid, I think is the point of that. And it sounds like, you know, he was working under one premise or contract and then was kind of forced to sign a different one, but just because he signed it doesn't make it valid. Greg, uh, during our tenure, there was a lot of physicians who were independent contractors. Exactly. Independent contractors basically <laughs> uh, could be fired at will. Uh, employees could not be fired at will. You know, you, for an employee, you have to go through this whole process of documenting, mourning, et cetera, et cetera, kind of thing. And, and you have to do it under the guidance of HR so that you cross every T and dot every I perfectly. Uh, and so in some cases, it's virtually impossible to fire somebody like in these, you know, these fire department, teachers unions, those kinds of things. Yes. So the issue of what is an at-will employee? Uh, we, we've talked about that in the past, even though I, you, you hear about people being fired all the time in the government, you know, like, uh, especially, especially in the president's office, you know, they change this or that, and this person's going. Um, Those are usually political appointees. But it isn't, I mean, they have a job and they're getting paid. Um, so, I mean, they're either a, an employee with some rights or they're not. I guess there's nothing wrong with having, I guess, some people who have can be terminated at will. I mean, if if you're not, if you've lost the confidence of the person that you're working for, that you see that all the time in the people that are fired from being captains of a ship because something happened, it, they, they say, the admiral has lost confidence in your ability to lead. And you get, well, you don't get fired, just get demoted. Right. <clears throat> Yeah, the people that you're usually seeing in the government are political appointees, you know, not the government employees that are exactly. moving out. Yeah, because yeah, I would think government employees get lots and lots of rights. They're all unionized, yeah. I would assume. Um, Tarasoff is alive and well in Indiana, uh, Rachel. Did you know that? It's alive and well everywhere, isn't it? All right, Tarasoff. I feel like everyone should know this case. But um, I was amazed to see it come up again. I mean, this is the, the classic emergency medicine case. This is this is from Mike Ritter. Uh, we this is quite old. I, this kind of one of those that slipped through the cracks. This was uh, published in uh, November 18, 2021. Um, where was it published? It was published actually by in a law firm's uh, newsletter. The law firm is Krieg DeVault, which of course I've never heard of, Krieg DeVault. But this is where they wrote up this case. So Tarasoff is basically the 1970s case that says that physicians have a duty to warn if they know that a patient is an imminent threat to somebody else. So you exactly. can basically violate HIPAA and warn that that person or you know stop 
that patient from carrying out that threat. Um, it's one of the few circumstances that we have the ability to violate patient physician confidentiality. So uh, in this article, basically it's reaffirming Tarasoff. Uh, state of Indiana held, uh, heard a case um, in which, let's see, basically reaffirmed healthcare providers can be held liable for failing to warn. In this case, uh, dealt with uh, failing to protect a patient's grandfather against um, imminent danger uh, from his grandson. Apparently the grandson had gone to the emergency department multiple times, threatening his grandfather and ultimately did kill his grandfather with a frying pan. And the grandmother filed a lawsuit against the hospital and several individuals basically saying, you know, you had a fail, you had a, an obligation to stop this and warn us that, that he was going to do this. Sounds pretty straightforward to me, although there's always two sides, but a frying pan. Yeah. So big iron pans, you know, that that would do it. Yeah. Anyway, the somebody didn't do the right thing here. It, uh, it's kind of unclear why you wouldn't. I mean, this is, seems pretty blatant. So there was a 2017 article that tried to kind of look state by state and see what the duty to warn was in each state and showed that basically there's kind of a couple different types of duty to warn that exist. So in a bunch of states, there's this, there is a duty to warn if there's any um, threats against a, a specific individual. That includes, gosh, too many states to name, but including. No, they'll be in our notes. Yeah. Um, and then there are a bunch of states that have a duty to warn if there's any threat to the public. So if somebody's like, I'm going to go, you know, bomb a whatever, there's a duty to warn there, you know, violate HIPAA. Um, bunch of states, if there's um, a threat against even kind of somebody that's really considering, not necessarily like you're certain they're going to carry out an act, but they're really considering carrying out um, some type of harmful act. And then there are 11 States that really haven't weighed in on this issue. It just hasn't come up. And so it's really unclear kind of what the physician's obligation or duty is in those States, unfortunately. You know, one of those categories, uh, Rachel was, they give you permission to warn of contemplation of a crime or a harmful act. So ah, okay. You're no allowed duty. to, you're allowed to do it kind of thing. And then the 11 States, others, haven't addressed this. So there, so there are degrees of the Tarasoff's, uh, there's, there's thresholds based on state law, because California was the basis of the um, Tarasoff law. So we have a, a version of it. And then all these other states, except for 11, have some version of it as well, but they're not all the same. Any other thoughts about Tarasoff? I know, Greg, that you like this guy. Uh <laughs> This is this is one of those cases that you learn early on in medicine and you realize, you know, maybe you shouldn't be silent all the time uh, that, uh, you know, we do we do have access to knowledge from various patients of things which aren't right. And you do have some obligation to uh, act in the public's defense. 
and I I think that uh, Tarasov is the is the ultimate in that case. And and you don't have to be right either. This is kind of like reporting child abuse. It's you're not reporting child abuse. You're charging, you're reporting the suspicion of child abuse. Exactly. Some, and then other these people will determine whether that's the case or not. So you're just so this is the same kind of thing. I mean, the threshold here is probably it's best for you to report than not report. Because and I think if if I lived in one of those 11 states where they hadn't weighed in and somebody said, you know, I'm going to go bash my grandpa's head in with a frying pan, I would probably not think too hard about the fact that the law hadn't come up in my state and I would, you know, break HIPAA rather than wait and see what happened. And I'd, you know, rather uh, be held responsible for breaking HIPAA than sit in court you know, waiting to see if the state felt like I had a duty to warn or not. Yeah. Um, this, this seems like the right thing to do, uh, whether you had a law or not allowing you to do yeah. that. If, if anything, you should be encouraged to do this. If this is, um, you see these cases with regards to physicians missing um, these malpractice, mal, this, uh, these cases of child abuse where they come in with in with a really pr- kind of minor thing. One of them, one of them was a torn frenulum. A torn frenulum is kind of like should make you think. Now these are all nonverbal children; they can't walk, uh, and it's it's uh, kind of like a tip off that why would that why did that thing get ripped? So it's like there's all of these subtle kinds of things when you leave them go back home. There's this horrible record of people coming back much worse, where then it's obvious that this child's right. been the subject to abuse. With, uh, and so the threshold for child abuse is really pretty low. And I think that that's probably should be generally your point of view. I'd much rather turn somebody in and worry about whether I violated their rights later. I think we're going to do uh, one more little thing. Risks associated with blocking access to patient medical records. So, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act came into being 2016 under the Obama administration. And the purpose of the law, at least one part of it, was to give uh, rapid access to medical records by patients and to, in, in fact, guarantee that access. There is no person in the hospital who does more histories and physicals than you as an emergency physician or PANP kind of thing. I mean, you may be doing 15, 20, 30, 30, uh, 30 a day. Nobody does 30 a day. You've had 30 interactions with 30 different patients and they all have access to their records. Occasionally, there are some patients who you think it's not a good idea for them to have access to the records. Um, maybe it's a, it's a woman who is, uh, you know, abused by her husband and uh, she's afraid that, uh, that there will be some um, taking of revenge or something to that effect, or there's some kind of STD that you're dealing with. And so the record can be sealed, but also from the patient as well. Uh, because the the fear of somebody getting it, and that's fine. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to to prevent patients from looking at their ER record. Um, 
However, if you do it inappropriately, the government says the government says that you could be exposed to a $1 million fine for every time you do that. It would be kind of expensive. Yeah. Uh, and they basically uh, say here that that the law allows up to a million dollars, but they say the regulations specifically for this in terms of what the punishment is, is has not been identified. This is an article by uh, John McCormick in Medscape, March 7th, 2022. If you want to re read a little bit more about it, we also have some links to these articles as well in the show notes. So <clears throat> what do you think? Any you care about? Do you, you have access, do you create a, you have some policies going on at uh, where you work, Rachel, about uh, blocking records? Just kind of unwritten rule that, you know, shouldn't do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a long, that, go, that goes along with the uh, employment agreement. Yep. <laughs> you know, your your file at, at, at Mayo is probably one piece of paper or something like that. You know, the entire file, you know, your, your behave yourself. Report. Yeah. That's right. All right. We got a few other things we can cover, but next week, next week we have uh, this great interview coming up. I know it's great because I've had a chance to talk with uh, Dusty uh, a couple of times, and I think that uh, he's a very slick uh, person in terms of his knowledge of emergency medicine, and he's going to give us uh, his uh, eight or ten things that if I had my druthers, I'd I would tell emergency visits with regard to how they shouldn't be sued. So pay attention next week. It's coming. It's actually the June issue, which we will be early on. Oh my God. At least I think we'll be. <laughs> All right, Greg, thanks uh, a ton. Uh, Rachel, thank you. We'll talk to you in one week uh, right. with uh, Dusty Otwell. Thanks guys. See Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.